You are listening to a special episode of the Bondzilla Podcast. This week, we take a deep dive into everything James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another deep dive episode of the Bondzilla Podcast, and we are going to be deep diving into some Bond-related stuff. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And, uh, yeah, uh, ready to di- deep dive again? Yeah. Don't, don't really have much uh, preamble. Yeah. <laughs> Usually we get, we get a yeah, I was going to say, don't oversell it. Um, don't, don't oversell the deep re- dive. Well, it's funny because, like, Will doesn't seem to remember some of the preamble stuff because before I was talking to him about... There's one episode of the Bonzilla podcast where we came up with the show where Her- Woody Harrelson becomes a a podcasting dad. I don't remember this this bit at all. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's, it's. I'm convinced that this is not something that happened on the show. Oh, it definitely talk- did. I can because I you said it. it was like Woody Harrelson was like a dad and he started podcasting. Yeah. And then Kelsey Grant. That's the thing that throws me. I don't remember. Well, because you, like, you said Kelsey Grammer was the host. Because it was specifically. I remember it was like. You think oh you excited like yeah Woody Harrelson's returning to TV and then there would be the disappointment of finding out that Kelsey Grammer is also returning to TV. What I don't what I don't remember any of this. I, to, I, I don't remember the context. To, and... I'm gonna have to read like listen to some in, in, episode intros. Can you just... can you imagine if like one of our listeners just like pulls the clip like he's like this yeah. this is where it was it was in this episode yeah and then that that's our first T-shirt is whatever this. <laughs> Whatever this weird. It doesn't even have to do anything with Bond. Or was Godzilla. it a TV show or a movie? No, it was a TV show. Okay. It was like it was specifically like a CBS style show. Right. Yeah. Like in the realm of like the Big Bang. Like theory. I know that there's like that show where Zach Braff starts a podcasting company. Well, that that's that got canceled a long time ago. Right. No, we we made up this show. This is not a real show. Woody Harrelson has to do Venom too. He can't be doing <laughs> podcasting dad television. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that worked out enough for a little bit of a uh, you know jo- jovial, um, a what? A jovial, a jovial, jovial. Okay, yeah, that's what I said. Uh, you struggled through it the first time. I said jovial, jovial. Yeah. yeah, which it is kind of joy. Why isn't it jovial? Yeah, well, that's the yeah. uh, English language What's, for you. What is jove? Jov. Yeah, exactly. Jovial. Jovial. Jivial. <laughs> Jubivial. Uh, um, now I'm just saying nonsense. Though. Yeah. Well, we have another deep dive episode for you, and uh, it's one that we've mentioned in uh, the past, back in our villains episode, um, to do a separate episode about our our hench people, our henchmen, hench women uh, that we've seen throughout the Bond franchise, um, who definitely have some very memorable and iconic roles. Um, but also can be a little, sometimes a little bit of a thankless role, you know, uh, sometimes. So I think uh, Will Will originally uh, said a history of henchmen, I think, off the cuff. And I, I kind of wanted to do that. So I thought it would be fun to kind of go through our, our henchmen history a little bit um, with the Bondzilla podcast. And um, to go ahead and kind of go over the history of the henchmen, kind of the different layers of, of what those henchmen represent. And uh, in kind of coming to a conclusion of what the henchmen mean to uh, the Bond franchise. Yeah, because it's one of those things where, you know, we've talked about many of what are all the main stays of the Bond franchise. There's Mm -hmm. the gadgets, 
there's the Bond girl, there is uh, the perception of the Bond villain, but probably one of the other biggest, uh, you know, mainstays of the entire franchise is the Bond henchman, to the point that there are many uh, either actors who have, uh, you know, gotten the role of the henchman which we will talk about that it is a coveted role that to have or it, it it is more so a role of note that uh whether you're well initiated or you're casual bond fan i think would know the trope of the bond henchman yes yeah even though like it would be interesting to know if you could if many of them could name one as opposed to it's just one of those things that when it's one of those tropes that is in many of these movies and is in many adjacent movies like this that you're like, oh yeah, if it's not the Bond henchman, it's the bad guy's main henchman. Yeah, uh, it, in the sense of like a you know a spy you know action world such as yeah. such as this. See, I th- I think that the the element and one of the things I do want to explore as we go through our history of henchmen uh, in this episode is kind of that very dynamic that you talked about. It's like what people can name. Because I think that there's very distinctly really two truly iconic Bond henchmen. Like, and even if people don't know the name of, like, Oddjob, they know, oh, there's the one that throws the hat and the one with the metal teeth. Right, I think that, yeah. that's really it. Where there is, a, like, a larger history, and I think there are definitely ones... And I think also, just like with the villains, but even more so in some ways, very interestingly enough... There's really a range of kind of the ridiculousness of those Bond henchmen because you have those big, those big henchmen, mm-hmm. you know, like the big over the top ones, like Oddjob with his hat and Jaws with his just you know Wizard Keel's iconic look and his you know big frame, but then you have you know the very lower key henchmen, mm-hmm. like just kind of the guys that are just these kind of big guys mm-hmm. and you know that kind of have different elements of like. They they're there to be the heavy and fight Bond, right? Especially right. when you have a villain that isn't as, um, you know, physically based, which a lot of these Bond villains aren't. I definitely think you have kind of a mixture with that. But it is interesting to see that because a lot of the henchmen, uh, a lot of the things about the henchmen is that the henchmen, more so than other villains, sometimes really have so much direct contact and direct confrontation with bond mm-hmm. so a lot of the henchmen in in terms of my estimation of how a henchman works and i'm just gonna we are gonna use the term henchman but i'm referring to our hench ladies as well mm-hmm. um I just don't want to say henchmen and hench ladies every time hench just, people yeah yeah hench people um we'll probably just say henchmen for space henches henches <laughs> give me the henches send, send in the henches send in the henches <laughs> um that's a funny that would be good that that's like a Dr. Evil. Yeah. Send in the henches. No, but I but I think that there is a lot of a henchman's chemistry with Bond. Right, yeah. In, like, and, and I think, you know, the villains, we, we talked about that. There's a lot of that too. But a henchman, they're so different because a lot of them, you know, don't get that opportunity to be the big over-the-topness, mm-hmm. you know, and, or don't get that opportunity to say a lot sometimes. Well, but there is an element of... You you know when that henchman comes up against Bond comes up against our heroes like how much does they stand out? Well, the the one thing I think that would be interesting to kind of talk about before really getting into the weeds is just the henchman as a trope mm-hmm. itself. Yes, because it's not like it, it is interesting that we apply it to Bond and there's very notable examples when it comes to Bond. But when we think about like what what is what is so lasting about the henchman? Because we see it in video games. We see it in comic books. We see it in various other action movies where you have 
um, you know, like whether it be Hans Gruber's henchman, who you yeah. know, the, you know, the, the one lead guy—I don't, I don't remember the name. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The one lead guy, because yeah, Carl. Yeah, because like he killed his brother, and yeah. then he's mad, and I would consider him the lead henchman. Then you get into like video games, where you have like I don't know, like Kamek is like yeah. a Bowser henchman, and yeah. like or like at least that lead secondary henchman, almost like the sub. The, the the sub boss yeah like the uh something like that and then you have um obviously in you know all the com- well you know even going into classic animation you have you know shmi for captain hook or something yeah. like that which is like sort oh, of yeah, the, the, yeah it's definitely like those disney you know, yeah. horse and jasper for cruella deville right right and, and it's interesting because that is the type of henchman that is almost kind of like fills in that henchman role of being which is it's interesting because it's not like an enforcer role, and in some of these cases, the henchman is almost like an enforcer. Well, I think it's it's I, how I kind of view it in terms of what connects all those types of henchmen is that in theory, the henchmen are doing the dirty work, whereas right. like you know, it's like to use the one hundred and one Dalmatians like example, like Cruella is definitely like the main villain, but she's not going to be the one to steal the puppies herself. She yeah. needs someone to do the dirty work, just as in our Bond movies, like. You know, when you have, like, Jaws is, is with Hugo Drax. Well, he's not going to go out. You know, Hugo Drax is too busy, you know, planning his new Garden of Eden, his yeah. new Earth. He can't go out and, like, you know, capture Bond or find Bond or something like that or, or like, you know, stop him from, you know, finding out this plant or whatever. Right. So he sends Jaws out there. They, they're there to kind of do the legwork for him. And I think that that's kind of what actually keeps them very much... Uh, Can someone tell me how the hell he got into our system? Oh shit. Shit, shit, shit. The actors. Gun! I am invincible! Sorry about that, folks. It, it looks like the card was actually uh, at capacity. Yes. <laughs> we cut out for just a we second. We did not check. Right before our technical difficulties, we were talking about how, you know, you're not going to have, like, a Hugo Drax get out there and, you know, do the muscle. Like, that the henchman acts as the dirty work for for the char- for mm-hmm. our lead character. But what I was going to bring up was that if when you have a character like... Uh, um, double O, double O six. Oh yeah, uh, Alex Trevelyan. Yeah, when you have Alex Trevelyan in like Goldeneye, and then he has you know who his henchwoman would be of uh, Zinni on the top, on the top, on the top. Would uh, that is more because obviously they build up Trevelyan as somebody who could take on Bond, so it almost works instead of the whole all oh, right, the intellectual who has like the muscle do the dirty work. It's almost like oh, like once you beat like the henchman, the very capable henchman, there's still like like the final boss that right. you need to. And, and I do think that also like in some ways like that Donna Top still reveals that like dirty work role. Yeah, but. Um, you know, because she's, you know, Alex. Alec isn't having sex with all these, you know, diplomats that are, you know, that she needs that she needs to kill. But I think like there's a mutual understanding of, you know, um, because it's always kind of. I mean, there's a joke in, you know, one of the other Austin Austin Powers movies we haven't watched where like the henchman gets killed and then right and then like they call the family and it's like always like an interesting idea of like how did all these you know people get together mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. how they all get in the villain series but especially for our like kind of our main henchmen because you know a lot of these villains you know like like a hugo drax for example has like all these other people working for him right know, like all those people on the spaceship and stuff and same thing with like specter is not just like our main like kind of thrusting you know henchmen 
Like like <laughs> like on the top, for example. Uh, our like our, our main henchmen that thrust the story forward. Right, right. But there's right, all these other people that good. work for them. Uh, it's always interesting to kind of consider that. But of course, well, you, know, you always have like those standout ones. Right. But the la- and the last example would be, and this isn't so much in the Bond canon. But one interesting element that a henchman always plays is that, and it's one of the reasons, I've heard a lot, like, I forget exactly where I heard this from, I think it may have been one of the Marvel directors said this, but they were, it was basically explaining that one of the uses of a henchman is that it gives the, kind of the, uh, the villain somebody to talk to. Yes, that's, some, that's very true cases. too. That's- because it's easy for when you have a villain for it to be become very silly. Like, they really don't have anything to do because by well, nature get, of them being a villain... That's why you get monologues. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like S- Syndrome could have used a henchman. Yeah, exactly. And, and you do kind of get into that, you know, right. that uh, age-old cliche and trope of the, the villain's monologue. And, and it's interesting that it, it's not so much... You don't see that as much in the Bond franchise. But if you're looking at fr- a henchman as a whole, like, again, going back to some of the animated classics, like... Iago is like a henchman of Jafar, and like that would be one of the more ones where it's like, oh, it like gives him a little buddy to to talk to at times. And I and I can't think of again the Trevelyan on the on the top is kind of like a, in that realm because it, it gives like kind of like oh they have like kind of like a weird little partnership going on as well, so it gives something to do other than the villain just like standing around just being the villain. Yeah. Um. I'm I'm trying to think of any if any of the other villains fulfill that in I, any I way i do think there are some in, in various ways yeah like i think um our like villain triumvirate within um living daylights kind of takes that realm where it's mm-hmm. like you have the you know the the tangier house and it's like not just like yeah uh you know uh Norgie just kind of being like oh i'm like getting away with this he has like people to make his plans with and stuff like that and i think um there are different aspects of that. The villain in Never Say Never Again is kind of like that like with that uh, with with um what's her name? Yeah. Yeah, so they they kind of have that role, but basically the only reason I say the the henchman role fulfills so many uses. There's so many uses for it because again it's like you have like they're doing off to do the dirty work or they're the ones that like have to have the real true confrontation with Bond mm-hmm. or, you know, they are need to just have that fight where Bond just kicks their butt. Sometimes. Yeah, they, they represent like a, another obstacle before the final boss or something to fill out the ranks of the villain. And it's just interesting. It give, and it gives depth to the, the villain and whatever organization or whatever structure, whatever plan he has. Sure, sure. Of, it does it, get, yeah, because some get, of it, it could just be plot mechanics. Like, you just can't have it be the one guy because then it's like, what else yeah. is there for the hero but, to but do? But it, it does give him depth, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, there's more in that kind of villain's world as well. Because, again, like, we, you were kind of right into that. We do establish that, like, Bond has his world. And it's like, it would also just be weird if it is just Bond going out by himself, that he mm-hmm. needs, like the Bond girl or like, you know, money penny or M or whatever to kind of still ground that world of his. Right. Same thing as like within the Marvel movies, like, you know, you have your, your villain team and like Thanos needs his, you know, uh, his dark order. Right. Or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, whereas like, you know, you need like the Avengers also need them themselves to kind of right. know, do their things. So. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, all those examples just kind of prove how much, why the trope has been such a long-lasting tradition, uh, not only in Bond, but just in storytelling itself. And I, and I also think it's worth mentioning, too, that this is the, the, in terms of the Bond side of things, that the henchman trope is something that comes directly from the Bond books themselves, and mm, from mm-hmm. Ian Fleming. 
that you know odd job is in the goldfinger novel uh you know jaws is based on horror from the spy who loved me novel as well right so there's there's different elements of like even within those kind of original even those early grounded ones you still have kind of this trope of these henchmen as they're building these like super villains and these these villain worlds that it just kind of you know creates something for bond you know, increase something for the hero in general to, yeah. to, you know, an extra step for them to go against, an extra means of not just the the plot in terms of an extra step before they, you know, beat the bad guy, mm-hmm. yeah. um, an extra set of drama, as it were, uh, but also to an extent of, you know, making that, you know, making our hero character more heroic, give him another battle to 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 take on. Right, definitely. Um, so, so then, but that leads into the trope of the Bond, Bond henchman, which carries a little bit more, much in the same way as the villain, but maybe not as egregious a, as the villain, because there's maybe a little bit more uh, to it where the henchman kind of has some sort of noticeable quirk or there's just something more iconic about them um especially like when you watch the movies whether it just be some sort of personality quirk or some sort of like uh some actual like um like either a weapon or something that they use and um and again but very similar in the same way to the villain is it a case where it is the few that define the rest of them are the are these the exception rather yeah. than it is the norm and i think that's something that we're kind of going to like get into mm-hmm. um so as we talk about the evolution of the bond henchman um i guess it's only makes sense to start as early as we can yeah. with it. Which will not be Dr. No. Right. Not, Dr. No notoriously does not feature uh, any henchmen for Dr. No. I mean, Dr. No does have, again, the generic aim suit people working right. for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, you know, the closest you have is the opening sequence. You have the three blind mice uh, who do kill the, you know, the government agent that spurns Bond to Jamaica. Right. But those characters are never seen really again after that or very briefly seen uh, though so they don't really stand out in that way mm-hmm. um but we do what we when we transition from dr no into from russia with love right now this from, one i'm interested to hear what you think because i think this is more of a debatable see here, uh of a, more of a debatable entry yeah my thing is that because because red grant who is um robert shaw's character in yeah. the movie, is is designated as the prototypical Bond henchman. It's sure. like the Bond, the henchman or the character that all other Bond henchmen kind of model themselves after. He's like kind of the baseline thing. Mm-hmm. What's kind of, what, but what is kind of interesting about From Much With Love, and I've thought a lot about this as we went into this episode, is that it's kind of a weirdly put together in terms of it being henchmen because what we would consider the henchmen are very much the lead villains of the piece because within that movie Blofeld is never actually right, seen right um and so if cuz you also have the Rosa Club character who is technically again in a subordinate to um Blofeld as well um within that movie or number 1 as they call him uh I would still place Grant into the traditional Bond henchman role because I do think that he is still responding to Ro- um Rosa mm. um mm-hmm. Rosa's, you know, instructions and stuff like that. Whereas I think that Rosa is a little bit more debatable on that henchman mm. sort of uh, line. Uh, I would personally consider them both henchmen because, again, the movie does establish that there is that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's setting up number one to be something revealed later, I do think that the movie presents them as 
subordinates right. of, of that person. But it, but it really does like the Red Grant character is a very important figure within these Bond films, mm-hmm. and I do think that it's really important to to note that he really lays out all the traditional aspects of what a Bond henchman is. He's mm-hmm. a little more physically imposing than than the people around him. He usually has a scene or two directly with Bond. I mean, that train scene is still an all-time classic, still one of the best scenes of tension that any of these movies have had. And I think that that scene alone, that train scene where they're discussing the plans and and, and the different aspects of you know where they are and, and how, how this deal's going to go down, as it were, uh, really defines a lot of not just Bond henchman interactions, but Bond villain interactions going forward through um, the franchise. And I think uh, Red Grant, even though he's very much the basic, very grounded for back when this franchise was still a very grounded franchise in most senses of the word, um, it still would be in like a a top list of of henchmen for me because I just think like he very much works for the movie, especially for Red Grant because Red Grant also establishes that for a long time that trope of the henchman doesn't speak. Because for so much of the movie, you just see him, you know, manipulating things or, or doing, you know, putting his plans in the motion, kind of tricking Bond in this way. Uh, and it's not until that train sequence, not until they're stuck together in the car that the discussion begins to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such an important element of why I like that character so much is that he carries himself as this kind of silent manipulator of the events in in such a henchman way and just like a background way in so many ways for that character and then when it all comes to a head at the train it it kind of the fact that he finally speaks gives that some spark of personality so looking up kind of how a definition of henchman is that it is kind of described as a loyal employee supporter or aide to somebody someone power some powerful figure engaged in nefarious or criminal enterprises a henchman is typically relatively unimportant in the organization a minion whose value lies primarily in their unquestioning loyalty to their leader the term henchman is often used derisively uh am i saying that right derisively um is it or a derisively? Deris- I think derisively. Uh, we can we know the language clearly. The English uh, language, ladies and gentlemen. Even comically, to refer to an individual of low status who lacks any moral compass of their own. So it is interesting because I would almost for this one go the opposite of where you are because if I think that technically speaking, that it within the world. That yes, this character does and and is established as being hired help for the for the organization yeah. of of Spectre. So, but the thing for me is that, and this kind of brings in a bigger question about the henchman is that it does a henchman seems to me to be defined a little bit more by their role in the actual narrative and story themselves, at least traditionally in yeah. my mind. Because so when you look at from Russia with love. For you know, in for for what it's worth, he is ultimately the villain of the piece. Is that he's the main force that is like you know yeah. at odds him with and, Bond, him and, him and Irma, yeah. right? Uh, regularly. Um, or, sorry, him and Rosa, right? Bro- so Irma is the is it something else? Go ahead. Right. So 
with that said, it is interesting that when you take some of the other examples of Bond uh, films that we see going forward, is that a lot of the henchmen do really play more of that supporting role to a primary other yeah. antagonist that takes an active role in the story. Yeah. So, and it's funny because when I watch from Russia with Love, one of the best Bond movies, yes. I think, uh, I don't view that character in the same way status-wise as I would an yeah. odd job or a Jaws because he's more of an active participant and, and a focal participant of the uh, of the story, of, mm-hmm. of being the, the antagonist, as it were. Like, he is in many ways the antagonist of the movie, whereas I wouldn't consider odd job to be the antagonist of Goldfinger. So that would kind of be, like, the only kind of like yeah. thing I would say, and that's why it's like debatable. But at the same time, technically speaking, he is right, especially because again, yeah, it, and you do have Rosa Klebb, who you know is also traditionally considered a Bond henchman, right? Uh, even though I would probably put her as the real true main villain of the movie mm-hmm. in terms of she's the one really directing traffic within um, this part of the Spectre organization, right? Uh, but it is really interesting that we kind of go from Doctor No, which is by happenstance really doesn't have any henchmen attached to right, it. Right, exactly. From yeah. Rush With Love, which has these two characters that are debatably the main villains of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, even though their roles are very much in that henchman base. Well, because again, and I know we keep on going to outside sources for it, but this is mostly to illustrate how widespread that the henchman idea actually is. Mm-hmm. But would you consider Ronan a henchman in Guardians of the Galaxy 1, who essentially, yeah. and many have argued, has that role of you know, doing his thing, but for much of the movie is like at the whims of Thanos for a lot of it. Yes and no, but but the thing about Ronan though is that Ronan eventually does go onto his own path, which mm. makes him more villainous. Because Got it. yes, because yes, he is at the hands of Thanos, but he stands up to Thanos and then eventually, basically, like screw that, I'm taking the power. Right, myself. right. It's definitely different in the sense that that one is more of a right. more of a like a plot mechanic yeah. rather than you know, it, it's actually the. In Bond, it's established that yeah. this guy is being hired help, yeah. like yeah. that he is not. Like I said, to if, be, if yeah. I were to go for the definition, mm-hmm. like because again, traditionally Bond fandom, the Bond, you know, wider fandom would consider both Rosa and Red Grant to be classic henchmen. I would say that very much Red is on that henchman status for me. Um, whereas Rosa is kind of more on the edge of being that movie's main villain, but that's mm-hmm. that's where I would stand. No, I, I, that's why I think it's definitely debatable. But then it it, it makes it mo- most interesting where it's I would say not debatable with the next in, in in our next film, Goldfinger. Yeah, so Goldfinger comes in, and it really this is where the true image of what the Bond henchman can be is, uh, which is Odd Job. Um, yeah. was is uh, a um. Because Ajab has just an iconic look. He's a stout Korean. Yeah. Um, you know, the, with the hat. With the hat, has the bowler hat. Um, so because he has the here's the thing, like he has the bowler hat, which is iconic. That he, you know, iconic moment in that movie when he first shows off. He cuts the hat uh, head off that statue mm-hmm. uh, at the golf course. But also, he's also someone who takes like the Red Grant idea of being this physically imposing person and takes it to the next step because he's someone who has this distinctive look, but yet still puts up like a really distinctive fight that he has like these powerful punches as well as right. having the hat. And I think what really, you know, drives this home is just the fact that this is that Goldfinger is a guy Hamilton production. And even though odd job is a Ian Fleming creation, you activated the echo. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. 
can't you can't get a break around here. Oh, can't man. get any peace and quiet. Um, but it, but, it, but it's like yeah. so odd job is very much a, you know Ian Fleming creation and a lot of that aspect of the character does fall into it but but guy's penchant for the absurd and the bigness and the comedy of Bond really helps odd job to stand out in that movie and I think that that really is where it, it, and there's an immediate aspect of like again odd job is one of those like Bond henchmen that if you were to say name a henchman. It's either odd job or jaws. Well, really. it sets that sta- again. It gets back to it sets the standard for what a Bond henchman is. Is that very iconic look? Uh, there's a style to him. He has a quirk. In this case, it's is like he he throws his hat at, at people, which is in once again when you really think about it, is is a real ridiculous addition. And in and on a, in a bigger scale, it shows that once again, Goldfinger is the movie that basically establishes all of the bond tropes that you associate with bond at least like the bigger the the more quote-unquote more outlandish uh aspects of the bond franchise um but yeah no definitely without a doubt i would say that odd job becomes because even if you have from russia with love you know we could talk about whether they define the the henchman role or if they don't whereas regardless of you know what the actual definition or the role of a henchman is is that without a doubt goldfinger establishes what a bond henchman is mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of like a very definitive aspect yeah. of the film yes indeed and especially because again it's um because odd job again fulfills that distinction of the silent henchman doesn't you know have really conversations with right. anybody and, right and again like you also have that you know the big fight at the end of the movie yes like there is the stuff on the plane but the big fight at Fort Knox is between Bond and Oddjob, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not going to have Bond have a fist fight with you know big old Gert Frobe, right? Uh, so Bond in that in that fight with Oddjob and the like electrocution aspect of that fight um, really establishes that aspect of it too. That the henchman is going to be usually the one that has the big fight with Bond, um, and then you know Bond will confront the henchman and maybe have a gunfight or maybe you know still have an, you know a battle quote unquote. But the henchman is really going to be the one that brings Bond to like blows and bring Bond to that okay he's gonna he might you know lose in this situation mm-hmm. yeah um and I think that is also again like Goldfinger does establish so much and I think it's just that combination of big villain and big henchman more so than anything else because mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing about From Russia with Love is that because it's still kind of a lower key grounded to an extent movie that those those characters do kind of mesh that you know realm of villain to henchman type of thing because there's like so much going on whereas goldfinger is very much like you have this big villain giving big speeches and then you have his silent henchman who can throw a hat right and i think that that really establishes like what the bond franchise is and then like odd job to i mean odd job is also very much something that his iconicness extends beyond the film because you also have obviously odd job is very famous for uh, his playability in GoldenEye 007, uh, the video game, um, where he can also throw his hat. But he's very much distinctive in that game where everybody wanted to play Oddjob because he was a little bit shorter than the rest of the, the crew. But also, you know, we we talked about Austin Powers on this podcast, but the character of Random Task is a very distinct, direct parody mm. of Oddjob. And I think there's just that iconic nature of that real true first iconic henchman that, you know, really makes Oddjob stands out still as one of the the all-time classic right yeah no absolutely no no question about it uh and then so from goldfinger we move on to thunderball Mm -hmm. um where we get our first true female henchman because in the previous two films we had 
these female characters, you know, the Bond girls were kind of sort of on a villain side before they, you know, moved on to Bond. So they were kind of like, you know, they're Bond girls. They're not henchmen, but they kind of fill this kind of role. Whereas the the character of Thunderball of uh, Fiona Volpe, uh, who is a character that's consistent be- between all the Thunderball um, uh, versions, even if her character names, uh, the character names change over time. Uh, she is very much the first female henchman, the first, you know, villain character that Bond really does like kind of, you know, face off against. And I think she is notable for that aspect. Um, and I do think like, it's funny that every time I talk about Thunderball is very much like this movie has flaws, but I defend an aspect of it, mm. even though it's not a movie. I really, it's like Thunderball. I, I think I've said this before, but Thunderball is a movie that keeps tricking me that I want to go back and revisit it. And then immediately I'm like, no, I don't want to go back and revisit this. But the Fiona Volpe character, I do think has some interesting aspects uh, in terms of, again, that, that connection and that chemistry with Bond. And I do think, Yes, there's certain aspects of you know, we've talked about it before, like the ridiculousness of her high speed driving, and then the fact that they do have sexual relations with each other, and mm. that kind of like, oh yeah, and I'm a villain now, and Bond's like, yeah, but I know I still had sex with you type of thing. But I do think kind of the uh, you know the, kind of the stuff that happens around uh, the end of that the, the end of her character in that movie where they're chasing around the Junkaroo sequence um, into that. The, one of the scenes, one of the film's more famous scenes, which is her dance with Bond and the kind of the tension of that scene where she's, you know, she's going to kill him and then she ba- he uses her as a human shield. I do think kind of makes her stand out. But I'll, just like much of Thunderball, there's just so much. The pacing of that movie just doesn't do her any favors because there's so, just like with everything else in that movie, there's so much length of her what her character does. And it feels like in a tighter movie, her character would stand out more. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, but here comes like the biggest thing is that you know, there's nothing really iconic, right. or memorable about right. the character. Memor- which, to be fair, like you know, the movie kind of goes for actually having narrative, like you know, reasons behind it at, yeah. at times. But other than that, it's like right, yeah, yeah. But it's like, um, you know, I, I've said before that like one of the saving graces of Thunderball is its villains. That I do like the in that movie the Maximilian Largo character mm. and just like he has a more iconic look because he's the eye patch and everything like right. that. Right. Mm. But it really, because also in some ways Fiona is also very much the very type of Hamishman that's there to play the role. Mm. Whereas like I think Oddjob and Grant get their opportunities to kind of shine more beyond that kind of henchman dis- distinction. Um, you know, again, with Grant and the Train and Oddjob with just a personality and, and the hat and the iconicness of that look. Fiona is basically like an Irish woman who's out to kill Bond. And there's there's really like she's there to play the role of kind of just a part of this whole Thunderball story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very much an, an aspect of what the type of role the henchman can play, too, is that sometimes the henchman's just there. He's they're there to give some scenes attention and ultimately they're going to just be to be defeated right and, mm-hmm. and fiona doesn't have enough beyond that to really push that forward um same same very similar to um what go, you know goes on into um you only live twice so it really doesn't have a main henchman um, mm-hmm. because the really the focus of that movie is kind of the larger specter organization so it's a lot more of those generic henchmen that you have there i mean you do have bond fighting um 
the rock's grandfather mm-hmm. in that movie in that one scene um but other than that there's right. really nothing distinct to that and even when you move into uh, honor majesty's secret service you have the character of irma blunt mm. irma bunt uh er, it's irma bunt um which is just basically an offshoot very similar to the rosa club character uh from for much with love except in this movie she does have that on-screen blowfeld um to uh, to play off of, mm-hmm. so she more is distinctly a henchman. But also the thing about uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is that they go with the more physically imposing Blofeld with the Tully Savalas version of it, right? And that kind of takes some of that what the henchman would do mm-hmm. into that because because Tully's Blofeld, which I still think is my favorite of the four, five Blofelds that we've seen, um, I think like that just what he is this guy who's going to go out and actually fight Bond and on the ski slopes and stuff like that. Um, and, and Irma as a character really is just kind of there to continue this masquerade of, you know, the, um, the therapy and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And that's, uh, and that, I mean, her big, you know, Rosa is the one who has the gunshot that kills Tracy at the end of the movie, but because of the way that, you know, the unfortunate aspect of them not being able to do the full sequel, you never really get any more to her character other than she's just kind of there to give these women their, their instructions and stuff like that. Or, or give them the the things that help, you know, Blofeld give them their destructions of world domination. So nothing really, nothing really there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go move on to Diamonds Are Forever. Right, yeah. Which uh, is very interesting, too, because this is a movie where the, the, the distinctive, the memorable henchmen of this movie are Bambi and Thumper. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, all, well, well, there's actually, there's two sets of henchmen. Right. Uh, Mr. Kid, uh, well, Yes, Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint. Yeah, um, Wint. Is it is it Mr. Kid and Mr. Wink or Wint? Yeah, Mr. Wint. Yeah, yeah, Wint. Yeah. Sorry, I was thinking of. I was like, no, that's the. I was immediately thinking, no, that's the kids next door character. Well, I, okay, so but to this day, I'm like, is that what they're making fun of though, name wise? Like, I always think of yes, that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so but no, but you have you know Bambi and Thumper in that fight, but you right. have the but again. With uh, Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint, you have this these distinctive looks. Mm-hmm. You know, they play it kind of in that with a homo. Yeah, they fulfill narratively, I think, the more traditional Bond yeah. henchman role where they're just like in the film like throughout and they're doing the bidding but of the, the villain. But they're different than Fiona because, again, they still have – they're still memorable aspects to those characters. You have the, those iconic looks. You have their kind of – those the kind of homosexual overtones that those characters do present right. throughout the movie. And – um you know, kind of their call and response, like, oh, like this is this, Mister Wint. Uh, you're right, Mister Kid. Like, mm-hmm. But you know, they, they're they're they still stand out as kind of more so than like the other aspects of that movie. You have, um, you know, even with this movie with all these mobsters and and Willard White and all that sort of stuff, they're still kind of stand out as kind of the very memorable thing that happens in this right. movie. Um, especially because again, they are. Ju- I mean, and it kind of fulfills like. What what Red Grant does is that he's kind of in and out of the plot, you know, manipulating things, making these decisions, and and really doing that dirty work and, and putting it on the forefront. Because Bond, you know, the Blofeld in that movie is very distinguished, and and you think he's dead for half the movie, so there's not really much that he can do. So you got to put all of that villainous stuff onto those two characters, mm-hmm. and it's really they they have. Again, it's kind of the henchman can be a thankless role because on the one hand, yes, they are kind of in and out of the plot, kind of have this kind of smaller role in general. But also they are also characters that are carrying them as much as they're kind of these smaller roles that are, you know, in and out of the plot. They also carry the main plot in many ways. And they're really the ones that you have to focus on 
on that villainous road because mm-hmm. again with especially in Diamonds Are Forever where you don't get that Blofeld reveal until much later in the movie that these are the characters that are you know smuggling these diamonds and getting these stuff and you know kind of again manipulating the gangsters and and the other aspects of things within Vegas yeah and you even get involved with the you know you know this all the plants and sort of stuff yeah henchmen definitely another benefit of them is that they do help out in a more mystery driven espionage type story because um they can because you don't want to have like especially if the mystery is going on and yeah. this this game of cat and mouse you definitely don't want the uh the 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 head bad guy at, at the front lines they, and also, what's also really funny is that like they, you know, Mr. Kid and Mr. Wynn also get that, that the villain comeback moment at the end of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That they get that role that, like, you know. Um, Which is a clever way of using a henchman, I think, because it allows to have the final villain moment, but not with the villain. Yeah. Because it kind of, like, uses the whole trope of, well, the henchman is a lower level villain that you kind of have forgotten about them, yes. ideally, at that point. So right. then they come back up for the final yeah, moment. Right. Is that, you know, sometimes that's, like, in, like in Gold, like, but it depends on the set of villains, too, because in yeah. Goldfinger, that's, you know. The odd job gets the final battle, but then it's Goldfinger at the very end who you find a plane, but it's also like Bond's not going to have that fight. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you also get, like, what's nice about a villain and a henchman like Mr. Kid, Mr. Wint, is that you do get that very, like, that last, like, yeah, Bond, where like, you know, yeah, you kill those guys. Right. Um, like, when they set one guy on fire and the other guy gets, like, exploded off into right. the distance. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, like, again, like, there's a movie where, that version of Blofeld is not someone like Bond could punch Blofeld out in in a second. Mm-hmm. Like you're not gonna have that big moment where like that successful moment with Blofeld. So you kind of get it with you know the sneaky henchman coming back at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And and also people do remember Bambi and Thumper as well. Being right. Kind of like the one scene, but they again very much like a memorable part of that movie. Uh, for a lot of people, so it's worth mentioning them too. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I mean, and they kind of have that, you know. I mean, their names are Bambi and Thumper, so yeah. it's kind of like they already have the memorable thing memorable about them. Yeah. yeah, and it's like also like probably the and, most- but the, but the role is also it, it's so defined as like here's the guy that you're after, and you have to get through these people. It and very then, much it, is like the the video game mini boss, right? Yeah, like that the henchman kind of evolves exactly. From. Um. So it's very much that way, and and, and even even it's a fun little fight between the Bond and those, right, those exactly. girls, and it's like probably the first because you know you have Fiona who's kind of more on the assassin aspect of her of her of the henchman role. So Bambi and Thumper being these physically imposing female characters mm-hmm. to an extent, and having actually a, a a pretty decent fight with Bond is also very distinctive and very momentous. Mm-hmm. You're right, the Bond franchise, absolutely. So we are done with the Connery era henchmen. Now right. we move on to our Moore era henchmen, who Moore has a lot of henchmen uh, that he goes against. Uh, pretty much all the movies, I think, have some sort of henchmen. Whereas, whereas you know, Connery movies definitely had gaps in between. The Moore movies pretty consistently have the henchman trope within them. We start with your favorite, Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our all-time classic episodes still to this day. <laughs> Um, and we do have the henchmen of, well, we do uh, two henchmen, I would say, right. two very distinctive henchmen. Um, Teehee, uh, yes. our Claude f- friend. Mm-hmm. I always go back to the story of, of why Teehee has that claw where the actor was just like, well, all the bond, you know, odd job had a hat and you know, um, I want a claw. Like, right. That's, that's yeah. going to be my thing. And that's really, 
I think what is fun for a lot of people about playing like a Bond villain too, but like also the henchman. You can do very different things with but the henchmen. But it goes to show that the tropes of the Bond henchmen were starting to take effect. Yes. That there were people who looked at Ajab and like, ooh, that's a role I want to play. Because, you know, it, it's more than a thankless role. Like, that's a role that has stood the test of time as being the Bond henchman that people would think of you. Like, like you could get some clout out of being like, oh, yeah, I was this famous Bond henchman. And, but, the, but you have to have a gimmick. You just can't be muscle number one. Like, right. you, you have to have, like, this was, like, my weird quirk that, like, stood, that, like, stood me apart from the crowd. Like, why am I? It's basically the whole thing. It's like, why are why are you the lead henchman? What what do you what do you bring to the table other than just punching people? Oh, yeah. I have a robot arm. Yes. Yeah, you're hired. And I think that, but it, and I think that's what makes Teehee a memorable aspect of that movie. Yeah, and I think it's also the performance of, you know, this is like a henchman who does really get some time to interact with Bond, and you know, he introduces the crocodiles and has the moment at the end on the train as well. And I do think, you know. Especially with with uh, you know what Live and Let Die is this weird ass possibly supernatural movie that we still don't know really mm-hmm. what the answer is that you have like a Teehee who I think Teehee is a, is one of those henchmen that obviously because so many other aspects of Live and Let Die get remembered that you kind of forget Teehee yeah. mm-hmm. and I do think Teehee is probably one of the more underrated Bond henchmen in my book uh, just from when rewatching these movies because I do think that. He also has like a very distinctive personality for what the movie is, kind of very much of the type of there there's a certain aspect of what they take from like black exploitation films, which is definitely what Live and Let Die is kind of based around mm-hmm. uh in terms of a film in terms of its style. I think that Teehee is someone who kind of takes elements of what was going on in those black exploitation movies and brings it to a new light within this bond film. Mm. And I do think that kind of really makes him stand out for me. And there's always someone I, uh, in terms of post this podcast and, and having watched all these movies, I think he would definitely be one. I would go to bat for more than I did before. Yeah, no, that's fair. And of course we, we can't live mention live and let die without mentioning, uh, the, Possible voodoo god of the dead, right? Baron Somebody, right? Um, who is probably the more memorable henchman of yeah. the two? Well, it, it, it's two definitely characters that fit all the check. They they check all the points yeah. of what it takes to be a Bond henchman. They have like an interesting look. They have like a gimmick to them. Um, but but in many ways, kind of like doubles over and outdoes the actual villain of, of yes. the piece. And, even, and that's a guy who dresses up as another guy. Yeah. So. Um, um, but, and also Baron Somedy is also notable for possibly being the only Bond henchman with supernatural powers. Sure, yeah. Potentially. <laughs> Who's out there somewhere. What if that's the callback they do? Like, Could you imagine if in no time to die? Yeah, like, he comes like, back. And that, you know what, They're what in I, Jamaica and you know that's what I, and he comes back. You know what I would want it to be? Yeah. I would want the whole movie to be over. Like I would want like you know like the main like you know Rami Malek has yeah. has has been defeated. Oh, he's like their post credits. He's their like Avengers initiative kind of like twist. No, like like it would you know what it would be for me? What would be incredible if it's like Bond has survived? You think like Bond's gonna die so many times during this? Like it's the last Bond movie. It's the last Craig, and then um, Bond like defeats everybody, gets Leia Seydoux, and like everybody's like, oh yeah, Bond, you're the best. And then like he basically like. Like almost, what am I thinking of? It's like a Sopranos ending, 
where like all oh of a sudden God. like Baron Somedy just like kind of shows up and right. then, and then it's like oh man no you know what it's like it's like remember when they announced that at the end of it that uh, Statham was going to be the next Fast and Furious villain yes like that's how they do Baron Somedy like <laughs> but Baron yeah, Baron Somedy is he I mean, hits him with a train what we are talking about is like Baron, Baron Somedy does have that weird post credit scene or end, that end credits yeah scene well where, he clearly well maybe not so clearly dies by falling into a coffin of snakes uh, yeah a coffin of snakes and then at the end of the movie he's just laughing at the front of a train <laughs> yeah and it's like oh and there was no ever come back yeah. again the only follow-up we ever had to that was in the devil 07 video game where he still survives at the end of that mission as a reference um but he you know people remember that very much and his distinctive laugh is kind of his little gimmick other than mm. being possibly the voodoo god of the dead yeah um but baron somebody definitely mentioned worth mentioning yep all right now there's Knickknack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Knickknack is definitely a, a big, a big one. Uh, well, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> he is, he is a, a, a little person. He, he's a little guy. Uh, now, but, unlike with Oddjob, uh, Knickknack was very much a distinctly Guy Hamilton yeah. creation. And Guy's intention with Knickknack was, I want another Oddjob. I want something that's very different for Bond to go up and go against something new um, and. Uh, that was that's what Knickknack is. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with um within his role in that movie because that's also he's a henchman of a very, very good killer mm-hmm. in Scaramanga. Right. So you don't have it's almost like kind of brilliant in some ways because Scaramanga is not the type of person who needs a Jaws or an odd job. He doesn't need that physically imposing you know can throw a punch henchman. He doesn't need a brick house. He needs someone like. Knickknack, who's kind of a little more sneaky, a little bit more kind of on the down low. But in many ways, they establish him as more of like a caddy almost, yes. like to Scaramanga's more, more, like assassin. It's more, more so than anything, more of a sidekick than at an actual henchman right. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like an intern. Yeah. <laughs> He's I'm, like a post-production that's my, assistant. That's my canon thought now. Yeah. But also, because Knickknack, don't forget though, Knickknack is a character that does consider and at least and at least once attempts to kill Scaramanga. Yeah, I mean that's a, a a thing that is not necessarily just unique to him, but is unique about the henchmen such as himself is that there is some you know there's Sometimes, other things going on with the character other than he's just like oh the right hand man to the villain is that he actually does have these desires that one day yeah. that he may be able to kill Scaramanga and take his place so. right because because remember Scaramanga is always like the assassin and he's like defeating all these big right. henchmen and there is an aspect of Knickknack thinking like well I, if I kill Scaramanga I will take over right. this empire and I I will have all the power and all the women because the real life Hervé Filchace is like wanted all the women right right um, and it, but then it's also one of those things where but then scaramanga gets something out of it because he's like being kept up on his toes all the time that yes. it's kind of like knickknacks keeping him like in right. shape they, they of being good, an assassin. they have a good connection uh and probably you know do you think as baron somebody is probably out there somewhere is knickknack still floating in that suitcase no uh and, and in fact i would say as possibly i would i'm trying to think of all the henchmen but maybe the the least uh, flattering of demises. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, getting that, uh, thrown out into a suitcase. Yeah, like not ocean. only being tossed into a suitcase, but being thrown. I don't know. Maybe he could be out there 
somewhere. Maybe like maybe he a pirate ship. On Fantasy Island. Maybe a yeah, that's true. I was like gonna he, say he the, the suitcase got picked up by that Fantasy Island dude. Yeah, and then he's basically like, well, if I'm not working for Scaramanga, I might as well be working for this guy. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be funny. It's like uh like like maybe Baron Samedi's out there, and he's just like, oh, like oh, like a like a like a suitcase that may have some some survival stuff for me and then it's like knickknack and then they get their revenge on the and that's the next bond movie it's just all the the henchmen um come back to either, take on bond either that or that's an episode of our james bond jr reboot yes yes there you go oh my god it's like it, it's like a legion of doom except for the henchmen. the henchmen and they're all trying to get back at james bond jr mm-hmm. that i'd watch that i'd watch but yeah no but that is kind of like the role of like knickknack is definitely a very unique role of a henchman and and is one that frankly is probably some of the more fleshed out in terms of like a henchman that they definitely take the time to give him like uh, some sort of a, mm-hmm. a character that separates him yeah um well then from we go from someone who's very small to someone who is very tall yes and probably the most right next to odd job right next i would to say Ob-Jab on on the iconic list is Jaws. Yeah. And Jaws has a distinction because this is going to be us discussing two films because... And I would say almost even more so only because of the simplicity of the name. It's the simplicity of the name and he has two movie appearances. Yeah. Um, so Jaws is this character that, yes, was originated from the character of horror from Ian Fleming's Spy Who Loved Me novel, uh, but really takes a life of his own with um, the Spy Who Loved Me film. Uh, and I think it is very much like Richard Keel makes i mean and all these actors make their character i mean mm. that's kind of part of what acting is is kind of really putting it out there but richard keel as jaws is just a, it's so perfect it's just you got this big frame this very distinctive face you got the metal teeth and i also think that jaws especially in that first one in spike who loved me is really a character that masterfully goes between being uh a a genuine force that you know keeps Bond on his toes and a comedic character, right? Yeah, and I think that's really what puts Jaws out there because a lot of the other villains, I think they're one way. All the other henchmen, there's kind of a one way or the other aspect to them. Right, right. They're very much like like Odd Job. For all of his, you know, there's a inherent silliness with the bowler hat being like this Rager Edge like kind of shuriken, but there's always that character is always very much taken seriously. He's always much taken as a threat. Mm. And same thing with like you know characters like. Fiona and um, Nick Knack is more so on the other end where again he does have this kind of he does have a little bit of a serious nature for him but because of his stature and because of its you know it's a later guy Hamilton film there's a lot more of a comedy aspect or, a, or an inherently silly aspect to how they present that character right whereas Jaws really kind of what makes him so memorable and so likable I think to so many people especially within that period in 1977 is that he's just kind of this big goofy character that you know, Bond can't hit because, like, you know, he's basically hard as a rock in, mm. in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. But then he also has moments where he, like, dusts himself off and, you know, kind of has ridiculous moments throughout that first movie. Is, um, and it gets more so in Moonraker um, because Jaws is this character that even at that time was an extremely popular character because because of the look and, and the comedy to the point where, again, you know, kids were writing in being like, we love Jaws. We want to see more Jaws. Why does Jaws have to be a bad guy? And that's that kind of where that led to in that next movie. But I think that there's so much about like, like Jaws is just the picture of what a henchman can be. And like, Well, but it, it adds a different, another piece to the puzzle about 
the power of the henchman and what you can do with the henchman because there is some more of that malleability that you can have fun with the character. And, yes. and we see that even with other characters, whether it be... I mean, generally speaking... The role, because a lot of people say, like, that's why villains are so fun to either play or write or, you know, to deal with is because it allows you a little bit more of an outlandish personality type than, let's say, the hero who's a little bit more straight-laced. But once you bring a henchman to the mix, it's almost that thing where it's like, but you still want the villain, the the main villain proper itself, themselves, to be a threatening force. Yes. So you still only have but so much room to like you right. know go go outside the lines with now with a henchman like you can go over the top you can go or you know as we get there eventually on the top yeah. but like but it is one of those things like with jaws specifically that there was some more malleability to have fun with the character mm-hmm. than, because think about it this way <laughs> is there any example where the villain is a fun character that you can have all the over the top fun with, and then the henchman basically out serious is the the villain. Like are there, there are there not many examples yeah, I can think of, of it. Um, I our tomorrow never dies crew. Really? In, yeah. in what way? Well, because like remind me, remind me that one again. Well, because like, tomorrow never dies is our big like media mogul like yelling at people over the top and then like you just have kind of have the stoic henchman character. that's true like he plays it a little you're right you're right so that that does play it a little bit more well i think straight laced there's more of that aspect though where it's like a but lot even of- in tomorrow never dies i mean yeah i guess so i guess they because there is that thing where he definitely you get the sense that that henchman could take out the lead bad guy yeah. I- easily if he really wanted to mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is a good example of yeah. that, but it, but it is something that I think is like rarely done. And, and oftentimes when they do play that card, they usually play that card to the full extent. Like usually then it's like, Oh, then the henchman turns on the bad guy be- yeah. because they can, it, it, it makes sense because you have to play that card carefully. If like the henchman is more capable and more straight laced than the actual villain, and you know what? then like, you start questioning it a little well, bit more. I do think that. Jaws is actually a very good example of how they do this. And it, they kind of have it where they have the two movies, but within Moonraker, right. like you have this whole thing where like Jaws is kind of this, because Jaws is also presented as like basically a, a simple minded, like he's, he has one track mind. He's out to get his guy. Um, you know, very much almost like kind of a robotic nature to what Jaws is. It's like, you know, he's kind of like, Jaws is, I think, more so than the other henchman, he kind of presents himself as almost like this horror movie villain. Like, yes. in another movie, he'd be the horror movie villain because he's always kind of there. He seems undefeatable. It's like if Jason was a henchman in some ways, mm, except mm-hmm. Jason was a little bit more incompetent than he is in those yeah. movies. But except I, Jason did not find love when he went to space. No, See, yeah, no. just more slaughter. But, I mean, that's the thing about Jaws in Moonraker is that he's still kind of, within this world, he's become this henchman for hire. You know, because like now that Stromberg's out of the means, like he only he's in the opening sequence working for some mysterious dude, and then he transitions into Hugo Drax. Uh, he finds love in that movie, and then even in that one, it's like, yeah, Jaws is a character that he could any villain he could go against is going to you know he could easily like just knock down in an instant. But Jaws has that that loyalty that you talked about in the definition, and that fierce loyalty, and that one track mind where he's mm. like, I'm going to get my guy. But as soon as Bond kind of points out the flaws where it's like, hey, like, you know, he's creating a perfect world. And let's face it, buddy, you're not, you, know, you and Dolly <laughs> right. aren't, aren't part of that perfect world. Uh-huh. And to see that kind of transition where, where Jaws does realize, like, well, I am my own person mm-hmm. and I do 
deserve a life to live. It's mm-hmm. almost like beautiful in that way. Right, right. Um, it's fun. It's definitely it, and it's, it's definitely, definitely like fun. and I think that's what also makes Jaws so memorable is the fact that he gets that second appearance and does get that opportunity to play hero. Mm-hmm. And then he moves on from from henchman to hero. Um and I think like there's such there is such an inherent like you can you can see how you can care for Jaws. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the white word. There's such an no that 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 makes sense. There's a, there's like you can kind of see even within Spy Who Loved Me, you can kind of see that aspect of the character come out sometimes. And so when it transitions into that within Moonraker, it's kind of so feels so natural for what that character is. And I also think because it is very much the big character in the in that kind of character. It's it's a character that's so big figure to and literally that like it almost feels like he is ripe for like this this spin off into a new adventure somewhere. Mm. Maybe not an actual spin off spin off, but like you could see that because there's such a look to that character. It would have been really fun to see like Jaws fully transition into like a a, a ally of Bond mm-hmm. um, as was originally intentioned for uh for your eyes only when back when it was you know not as uh grounded as they tried to make the movie ended up being. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, so any other thoughts on Jaws? Because nope. I do think that like, Jaws is is probably the one of the you know top two. Yeah, top no, three. I mean like I think I think we've said what we needed to be said, but it's we like defi- for- definitely tied with Odd Job, maybe even like the winner in terms of I think recognizability and like the go to for what a lot of people think is the Bond henchman. Yeah, so um, we move on to For Your Eyes Only, um, which is a again movie that's trying to get back to the. From much with love nature, so it kind of takes a step back from the jaws and the knickknacks. Our our only true henchman, uh, as we kind of see it, by the definition, is our decathlete defector, mm-hmm. um, who memorably throws his uh, motorbike at right, Bond, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably the most memorable aspect of the character. But this, but the same thing in that movie that I think in, in some of the other ones we talked about, where it's that like that character within that movie doesn't need to be a Jaws, doesn't need to be a knickknack. Like, he plays that role very well, and I think, like, you know, it's just kind of there to kind of help move things in the plot along, to give Bond an extra hand to fight. Mm -hmm. Especially because, like, again, that also is a movie that very much has, like, a mystery of, like, who its villain is, because they're thinking you it's it's supposed to be, you know, oh, Christophus is making you, you think that um, Columbo's the villain, but then it's kind of, I know Columbo is the hero and, and Christophus is actually the one, you know, working for the Russians and stuff like that. So there is that mystery aspect of the character. Um, but I think it's, again, like that, I think like sometimes you feel like there's an instinct of like every Bond movie needs everything. And I don't think that like, yes, Furious only maybe doesn't have the most memorable henchman in the world, but really that movie doesn't need it. The, mm-hmm. the story that it's telling is very much focused on, Melina's revenge and Bond, you know, trying to find this ATAC system and kind of the the more dynamic nature between Christavos and Columbo as well. That like the henchman is just there to fulfill this role as an extra hand to Bond to fight. And I think he he plays it very well. And I, I would say the same thing for Gobinda in uh, Octopussy. In that Gobinda is very much the definition of a henchman that works within the context of the movie but has nothing else memorable about him. Because I do go back to Octopussy, and, and again, it's another movie that has a lot of flaws in it. But I do think, like, Moore and the actor who plays Gobinda does do have a good chemistry. I think, like, there's just, like, fun moments that they have, like, when Bond asks Gobinda, do you want the nightcap and stuff like that. Like right. That. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, nothing about Gobinda is something I would say, like, oh, you need to go out of your way to see it. But within the context of what Octopussy is, he plays the heavy well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to our final Moore movie. 
view to a kill, which does have a very distinctive hench woman in our in this realm of uh, Mayday mm-hmm. of uh, the Grace Jones character. Mayday is one of those characters that I feel like if uh, if View to a Kill was a better movie, she'd be more iconic. I feel yeah, like, I feel yeah. like there's 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 a good idea, and I think Grace Jones is like a really good casting idea for like a henchman of that type. Mm-hmm. But it's just like that movie is so nothing, and yet all over the place. But it does that, stand out as being like a very unusual like look, look yeah. and like you know, the Grace Jones type. definitely plays with. Um, you know her distinctive, her dis- her own distinctive look and that kind of androgynous style that she had. Um, and again, I think she does have good chemistry with with the few opportunities she does get to match up with Bond with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also I also think that Mayday uh, does play off Christopher Walken well. I think yeah. they both kind of you know even though it's not peak Walken, it's not full Walken. You, you never go full walk. Yeah, it, but it does kind of go back. That is another example of it gives the villain somebody else to kind of chat with uh, because they, they do play that card a little bit at times that there is some sort of like friendship or relationship yeah. between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he has somebody to talk to. But no, but I would actually put, you know, I, I don't think that unfortunately because of all the reasons you said that she's not on anybody's real go-to memorable list as being like, oh, that's what a Bond henchman is. But I, I think that she has earned her role as being like a solid entry in the list in, in of Bond can- henchmen. No, yeah. she's a solid entry in the canon. It is just like if that movie was better, she would be more iconic, I yeah. feel like. Yeah, that's fair. I would, I would say that. Yeah. Uh, but then as we get into the Dalton, the Dalton movies, do they – like I, I don't recall yes, any yes. – Oh, I can talk to you. Yeah. Oh. Oh, sorry. Flutter, my heart's fluttering at the Living Daylights. Um, so the Living Daylights has its kind of main triumvirate of its villain, villain characters of Kozgoff, um, the uh, Brad Whitaker, the arms dealer, and Necros. Mm-hmm. And I... Okay, I'm going to start with... Because I, I do think that, like... You know, we didn't really mention him in the villains episode, so I do want to mention the Brad Whitaker character because he does kind of play a henchman-ish role for Kozgoff's plan and kind of yeah. really. Uh, so, would you know. call him a villain then? Is he is or is he nothing? Is he not? Uh, no. Cause, cause I, is there a, is there an in between villain and henchman? Because I feel like he's somewhere in there. Yeah, I I don't. He's think not the main villain of the movie. He's not a main villain, but, but I also not. don't think he's a henchman. Either. Within your definition, yeah, see, I see, I think he he's I don't think he's in the movie enough to be considered a henchman. Um, well, he doesn't I mean like so just an antagonistic character. Yeah, I just think he's an like another villain. Yeah, I think he's like a well, secondary. But Necros villain. is definitely a henchman. Necros is definitely a henchman character. Yes, and I can I can definitely say that not a lot of people will have the love for Necros that I do. Mm-hmm. Because Necros can fit into that Gobinda style where it's like he works for the movie he does. Mm-hmm. But I do like, there's a couple aspects. Again, I do think Necros and Dalton have really just some nice fights together. They have like, the you know, they he chases them through the park when he kills his friend. I do think that they establish Necros as this kind of killer. And I do think one of the things I like about Necros is the decision to give him like that theme because mm-hmm. one of the aspects about Necros that is very distinctive is he's always listening to where is everybody gone by the pretenders mm-hmm. and that's kind of his score theme that his that's played during Necros themes and also you can hear like him listening to the music and there's a couple aspects of that I like one is that it does establish that song and that thing as tension because there's that when he's about to kill the buddy at the at the cafe 
you you hear you like you know Bond and and, and the buddy enter and then all of a sudden you hear the little you know where has everybody gone so it already gives him a little bit of like oh man there's that guy mm-hmm. but I do think like he's very competent as well he you know the way that they present him in like disguises the milkman and then infiltrating the MI6 yeah. you know, base yeah no no you're right you're right you're you're getting me on board and, with, with that one and even like stuff like um. You know, he does, even as a henchman, he stands up to, you know, Whitaker and Cosgrove where it's like, listen, like, I don't want to kill, you know, I don't want to kill this guy because I have so many Russian allies. And then he, when he comes back and, you know, he's like kind of doing hesitantly, but then Bond kills him and he turns the spotlight on him and stuff like that. Right. And even that plane fight that they have when they're both hanging out, mm-hmm. I think it's just super fun. And I think like, how, Necros is the character where it's how you do kind of the simple henchman, like the base henchman, where you give him enough little things where it's like he likes the music where you don't need to give him all the over-the-topness, but he just kind of works. And I, I really do like Necros, and yeah. I always have. And that's an aspect of that movie I do really like. Yeah, I mean, and he's going around doing the dirty work. Like, yes. you know, he has a role throughout the movie. It's just like Brad Whitaker is just a secondary villain. Like, he's not that's, that's really fair. a henchman. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I would agree with, with Necros, absolutely. I do I do think, I, again, because I'm a big fan of that movie, and I can understand if you don't put him on your list. But he's, he's on my list of, of favorites just yeah. because of this. The weird uniqueness of him. Uh, so Sanchez is our main villain of the next movie of, of License to Kill. And and Sanchez is kind of in that same realm where he has kind of his network of people. Mm-hmm. But maybe not anyone that really fills the truest of henchmen roles. The closest maybe would be kind of the Benicio Del Toro character, uh, Dario to an extent because mm-hmm. you know he's involved with the killing of yeah. of Della. No, I would say that Benicio del Toro yeah. is the the yes. henchman. Yes, and and his quirk is that he's Benicio del Toro. That's really it. Like that's the thing about that character is especially because it's like he early, says honeymoon weird. That's uh, like his thing. And you know, it, he's like, I think John Glenn said it best, where it's like his 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 just that quirkiness, that intense quirkiness. Sure, yeah, the intensity that his quirkiness gives, you know. I think it's very interesting to consider that being early career Del Toro too, because I think like it's one of those things like now that we kind of know who he is and we've had this whole career of him being like kind of this having this weird quirkiness. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny to look back on him and seeing like if you were seeing that movie for the first time that he would stand out because there's just nobody like Benicio Del Toro. Right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think like like Sanchez is interesting because he has this large network of characters and like a lot of people are doing dirty work for him because that's like the type of character he is. But Dario's like really like the one on the edge. And I think that also kind of sets him apart is that there's that edginess where you can see like Benicio del Toro, that the Dario like going off Mm -hmm. and and being that crazy character. Yeah. But then as we move into the, uh, the Brosnan era uh, of films, we, we kind of get a little bit more in, in my opinion, back to, like not entirely, but some of the more mainstays of like what I would consider to be classic Bond villains in terms mm-hmm. of very, very big identifiable aspects of the character. Um, now with the first of which being, as we said, Zenny on the top, on the top, who, uh, who let's face it is one of those like okay, it's a female Bond henchman. Yes. Um, and the biggest thing is just the performance and the over the top nature of how it's being played and it's one of the times like one of the few times i would say is that the henchman become gets that status of being a bond henchman and their quirk being just how that they're just turning it up to 11 yeah i mean like 
We like how many times has a performance actually given like the Bond henchman its status? Would you say? Because it's like I, you know, I not to say that they're bad, but like Odd Job and Jaws, like I wouldn't say it's like you know that they're really like putting in like a great performance to get that status. I would say that there are. I think I get that aspect yeah. of it. I guess Baron Samedi would be one. Baron Samedi would, yeah. would be up there. I do think that there's. I do think that like I I will give Richard Keel credit for for the way he like performs that comedy. Mm-hmm. I do think that like when when he when he's playing that that dance sequence where he's about to kill that woman in Moonraker, but then he has to like dance with everybody as they yeah. come through. Yeah, okay, fair I, enough. I, I do yeah, think yeah, yeah. that like Keel is able to kind of push that performance through his comedy a little bit more, mm-hmm. especially because I think like I would say go back to Jaws. I think what makes Jaws so impressive impressive is. Keel does have limitations with the fact that he does have his metal teeth. Mm. And even from a performance perspective, we've talked about that that is a hindrance because you can only keep that teeth in for so long, yeah. that prosthetic, until there. So I think I'm more, more impressed with just the way that it plays. You know what? But, but that actually points out – I think this is what I'm trying to say. I think how I started off is not the best way. I think what I'm trying to say is because just as you said that the Jaws performance, a performance starts coming out when – in the second film, when he starts to get a little bit yeah, more fun I think stuff there's, to there's do, there's aspects of it in Spy Lovely. Yeah, like the bits of comedy gets into now. That movie. I think one of the best things about Famke Jensen, uh, yeah, Famke Jensen, yeah, Famke yes. Jensen's uh, performance as on the top is that all pretense that this is like a like obviously it's played like sincerely, but all pretense that like this is supposed to be a serious character is kind of thrown out the window by making it basically like for lack of a better term a cartoonish over the top having the time of their life bond villain i mean like come on like one of her big appearances is that she comes in with like you know looking like a stormtrooper almost not like an like a star wars stormtrooper but like a military stormtrooper like having her tongue sticking out giving the smile with like two big guns and it's like out of somebody's like fantasy definitely and i think that and you're supposed to have fun with it like you're not supposed to be like oh let's let, let's take serious the pathos of this character is that everything about her performance is like yeah like i'm having fun loving being the bad guy and i think that that is almost like what in my mind makes her one of the top bond villains of all time i think i don't know i think she's definitely like or my, henchman sorry my, my favorite henchman like her and jaws are one and two yeah and i think the thing about the on a top character is the commitment mm-hmm. and it's like not just the commitment from Famke, but the commitment within the film now to to make her a sadomasochist mm-hmm. which is the other important aspect of that character is someone who takes pleasure from pain mm-hmm. and i do think that i mean it's just, she's just so good right. and just so entertaining and knows exactly what she's doing and like and again a lot of what a bond henchman is you're only as good as how you act yourself with Bond. Mm-hmm. And the f- scenes between Bond and Onatop in that movie are all incredible. You have their introduction, which is like the traditional Bond meets girl sexiness, but has that era aura right. of, of, of Famke's performance. You have the bath fight, which is brutal, where Bond's throwing her against walls, mm-hmm. and she's taking so much pleasure out of it. You have the train thing where she's like, you know, when, when Bond and Trevelyan and Famke all are confronting each other and you have that incredible moment where she's so excited that the train's going to crash. Right. And then you have their last fight in the jungle and like her 
you know, and she has the distinctive legs, the you know the head crushing, and um, you know, and just that vampire look, mm-hmm. gigantic. But it, it, it's supposed to be funny though. No, like, no, I, it's supposed. That, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's no, no, like, it's it, supposed it, to. And like she again, she knows exactly what she's doing. She's creating this crazy. It's a performance that you can't help but enjoy. Like, right. It's just. If you don't enjoy that performance, like, what's wrong with you? But, but think about it. Like, they do it twice in that movie, and I wouldn't say it, it's quite the solidified henchman role, but with, like, let's say the secondary henchman with um, uh, um, oh, the, oh. the hacker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm yeah, blanking yeah, on yeah, names yeah. tonight. It's um, late. Uh, but what, what's... Boris. What, Boris. Yeah. But, like, yeah. with Boris is, like, but it's interesting, like, you have two characters that could fulfill some sort of henchman role... And are essentially, you know, big performances that are meant to be enjoyed and have a sense of humor about them. But your villain, Trevelyan, is the one that you're supposed to take 100% seriously. And he's got, like, the plan and the, yeah. the, 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 the all, like, the character motivation and development. Um, so it's just interesting that, like, you know, you come to the henchmen character that are allowed to have a little bit more of that over-the-top right. fun. I also think that, like, what actually makes them both work in GoldenEye is I think what both of those henchmen characters share is confidence, an extreme confidence within themselves, which I think makes them even more fun. Because you have, like, Anatop, who wants nothing but pain so she can have pleasure mm-hmm. um, and takes so much joy in that realm, but also has this confidence of, like, her place in the world. Right. And you have Boris, who is, you know, she he's a snob. He's She's a level two hacker. She can't crack my code. Mm-hmm. And, like, and when, like, he's... I was talking to someone about this, uh, someone else the other day, but like that moment in that movie when he, you know, was using the exploding pen and he's clicking the pen when he's trying to like, you know, she like, she hacked into the thing and I got to like stop it. And it's like, just like that, you know, that ignorance of what's around him. I right. Think. And I think that what makes Boris as well as Boris being someone who is slimy, you know, and I think you need that. And like, you know, that the way he, you know, skirts by and that's like, this is, he's a weasel. He survives by, choosing to go off and do this you know hench the do hack for this 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 villain in, in trevelyan um especially like how he know, manipulates N- natalia and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff so i think you've, you've really got a, a duo of really fun performances really fun characters and both of which play off of their you know heroic counterparts very right, well because right. even boris and natalia um have very fun scenes together uh in their kind of weirdo friendship that turns into like, hey, you're you're not my friend. Right, right, right. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies comes along, which kind of briefly talked about before. You have the character of Stamper, mm-hmm. um, who is just kind of this, this big bad German dude. Yeah, thing. yeah. They they try to give him the thing where you know doesn't he like torture and like oh that, he knows like, like the, the pressure points. Yeah, and stuff like yeah. That. They they well, they try to do that. Well, the other thing about that character though is that he originally had he did originally have a quirk. Mm. Which was given to the henchman villain of the next movie, right? Oh, uh, the the no pain, the no thing. pain yeah. thing, mm-hmm. and then the and then just like the that sort of aspect. So that very that character was very because again that remember that that tomorrow never dies production was so wild and so all over the place in terms of a, not having a script and having to shoot for a date to get stocks out and stuff like that. So that's really a thing where it's just like you just you know again using the henchman as a very utilitarian role. Of just like, oh, we need someone else for Bond to fight in this right. scenario. And, you know, give him some things. But really, it's like you don't have the opportunity to give him those quirks or give him that personality because you're. If you're writing a movie that fast, 
the last thing on your mind is like the henchmen are the type of characters that you can easily lose focus of because mm-hmm. in a movie like that, where again, it's like last minute and they're writing the script day of, it's like, you're really, okay, well, we got to make sure bonds good. And we got to make sure our villain has things to do. And we have this, you know, you know, we have like, you know, we have, uh, you know, this, this Hong Kong agent we got to focus on. Like the henchman's going to be the last thing on your mind. Right. So mm-hmm. Stamper, I think is very much a victim of, the type of movie and the type of production that was. Yeah. You just don't really get enough of that character. Yeah. And then again, I think maybe and it's, it's a little bit harder to do because you spend so much time creating this huge personality in your villain, yeah. which is something that, frankly, up until that point, like was lacking, I think, in some of the Bond movies is that they didn't really do that huge, like big theatrical performance with the villain. And it's kind of hard to do that because otherwise, then you're right, that just kind of requires like basic, muscle like, yeah because and then if you go like kind of what we said if you go too far in making the that muscle that formidable then you're like well but isn't this the guy that's more yeah. of a danger so th- that may that makes sense to me but and, then from there you know and again very simplistic movie but we get to the next one uh the world is not enough where we have another kind of scenario where mm-hmm. we have a villain who kind of is he a henchman? Is he a villain? Yeah, uh, uh, I, well, I, I actually think this may be the example of a movie that doesn't have a henchman yeah. proper because because it, like you know they they do theory, the they in, do the Dark Knight Rises thing where you know you think it's the one guy and then it actually yeah. ends up that he was just whipped the whole time and that he <laughs> and he was actually under the. Uh, under the control of a of a woman, oh man, um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, who so ends up being the better villain of the of the film? Yeah, uh, so like, in if you were to really go about it, like we've kind of talked about that, like you know, the rig reveal is like Renard, our character who feels no pain because there's a bullet right driven slowly into his brain, um, is actually kind of working with Electric King, who you kind of think is going to be the main Bond girl, but actually isn't. I don't think you can reveal that somebody is a henchman. I, I think that maybe technically, yes. No, again, this is a technicality. Thing yeah, where it's like there's a she. He is working for a higher power. Right. Yeah, unquote. but you can't get me on board with the guy as the villain, but then just say like, oh, but he's like the henchman. Right. Like no, yeah. or at least in that traditional way we view hench people. Like yeah. I don't think he can. No. So I, I this would be one of those movies where I think doesn't have a proper henge villain. But I I do think that we have that in the next one in I mean clearly Nick top fiver right here the infamous diamond face. Oh, I thought we going to talk about Mr. Kill. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Wait, did I skip over a movie? No, 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 no. Yeah, Remember, no. no, Mr. Kill is the, the guy with the laser and I was making a joke. Oh yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I, was making, yeah. I was making a joke. He's no. almost better. He's almost a better yeah. henchman. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we do have Diamond Face. Diamond Face. Sal, yeah. also known as. Yeah. He'll always be Diamond Face in my heart. You know why they call him Diamond Face, Nick? Because he has diamonds. Because he's got it. diamonds in his face. Um, Yeah, I mean, this, this feels like one of those things where he's in the movie because there needs to be the quote-unquote Bond villain. Like, you know, it, it seems like they tried to, like, tip the, like, do a tip of the hat by, like, oh, like, because you, you can tell, I guarantee you that if you look at the behind the scenes of this movie, it's like, well, yeah, every Bond henchman has, like, a weird well, quirk or something. Yeah, Leo, it, Leo, Leo, remember, Lee Tamahori is very much, like, when he's, like, you have a diamond face. Like, yeah. you need that movie. You need that in a Bond movie. You're right, but it, it is one of those things, but it's, like, the character itself, other than the look, has no other presence. Not Like, Zhao doesn't really do anything no. personality-wise. And he doesn't have, like, like 
that's the thing too. It's like I guess like the diamond face aspect is the iconic aspect of that character. But I even wouldn't put him on like the Mayday level, where it's like again, Mayday I feel like was close. It's just like the movie was just not good and prevents that character from really evolving. Sure. Whereas like Zhao really, and again, it's like all the whole North Korea stuff in that movie is kind of messed. Up with the There's movie. also no reason he needs a diamond face. Yeah. Like he he's doing these no, facial just, reconstruction. Just pull the goddamn diamonds out right. of his face. Well, he needs like a memory of what Bond did to him. He, yeah, he blew oh, up the diamonds in enough. his face. Yeah, but really, but yeah, Zhao doesn't really have things. And then it's a kind of the same thing where Zhao has like the diamond face, but it's you know it's Gustav Graves. It's like first blood to the torso, and kind of gets a little bit more of the meat of that big role. So like, and, and Zhao is very much like that that archetype of like kind of the serious badass type of thing right like right he, he takes everything so seriously well, but he that's what he is he's he's you know he's for lack of a better time he's eye candy he's yeah. like because he was on all the posters he and oh, yeah. he was supposed to fulfill and and frankly i don't I, let me give credit where credit's due he does fill the role of the bond henchman yeah he so whether he yeah so whether we think it's effective or not he is fulfilling the role and continuing that legacy of the bond henchman being uh you know, someone of no, like of noticeable difference in like you know how iconic they are of having some sort of quirk and his quirk being diamonds in his face. So as much as we joke about it, and you know, I even feel like you know he doesn't actually live up to his his name of being a mm-hmm. diamond face, uh, but he still has yeah. a diamond face, and you you got to respect that about him. Uh, yeah, you're right. Mister Kill does get that laser moment. So. Yeah. He kind of is cooler in some regards. Also, yeah. his name's Mr. Kill. Yeah, it's like, why, at, the, at that point, why isn't Zhao being the laser guy? Yeah. Like, why, why isn't he doing Because he's got stuff? diamonds. Yeah, he and, does. And, That's true. And diamonds. I actually di- forgot he had the diamonds in his face. No, but diamonds, like, you can you, make, you can use lasers and diamonds together. Yeah. It seems like a natural Like, he fit. shoots the lasers into his face. And it, like, reflects. And then all the lasers come out of his face, out of the diamonds in his face, which... Because I don't know if you knew this, Nick, but his name is Diamond Face because he has diamonds in his face. Sure. Um, but yeah, before I get all into that, let, let's move on to our final era of of Bond of Bond hench people, in which there's one. Yeah. Yeah. Like none of these. Yeah, the Craig movies really distinctly move away from yeah. the henchmen as part of that. I mean, to be fair, like it really makes sense with the Casino Royale because Casino Royale is again very much based directly on the Ian Fleming book and there's really not much going on there in terms of henchmen to use. Right. Um, you know, it's because again, like there's you know, there's different aspects of like people he chases, right. you know, like, the, like the thing at the airport chase. But there's not really a distinctive like this is the henchman of the movie because by the time you move to Casino Royale proper, you're kind of dealing with, you know, our main, you know. But that was kind of the thing about Spectre when we got there is that there was because with Batista getting the role yeah. of Mr. Hanks is that right, cause it, it just, was a definitive like that was kind of like the statement they were making is like we're bringing back the Bond henchman. Yeah, because like again, like um, I, uh, Quantum of Solace is one of those movies where it's just a lot of people are working for this guy. No real. Like I think, like Miss, I think Green does have like a bodyguard at one point. Yeah, but like again, nothing that would be like you know I couldn't, I couldn't tell you his name if I looked it up. Like you know, right. it's just like there's nothing. Even if I looked it up, I wouldn't be able to remember his name. It's just like there's nothing distinct about that character. And then Silva is presented as a lone wolf, right? Who's you know, basically you know maybe got you know other than you know that he was hired by Spectre in retrospect. So yeah. Like other than that, other than that, <laughs> but within Skyfall, he's. 
He's kind of a lone yes, wolf. Yeah, like definitely. he may have like a people or two around him, but he's really kind of acting on his own. Volition. Yeah, they're really those movies. A lot of these movies don't really have like this is the guy that Bond fights more than once during these adventures. Right, because like even it, yeah, because it's even like like Skyfall does have that guy in the opening sequence that steals like the list. Right, but it's not like that's a guy who comes back. And like you know, it's like, and then that's like, a, there's the assassin guy, but he kills that assassin guy by throwing him out a window or f- having him fall out a window. Yeah. But it really is Batista's uh, Mr. Hinks. Yeah. Uh, even the Mister is very distinctly like reminiscent. Well, everything about him, like the name, like the fact that he's like always kind of like in these like brighter colored suits, he's is like a thing. The, he's just like the big frame, yeah. and he keeps popping up. He has like more than one action scene with Bond. The fact that he's Dave Batista in a movie yes. is, is part of it. He's got nails. He's got thumbnails that he got. Like, I guess that's his thing is that he gouges eyes. But again, it's a shame because I actually think that Dave Batista is bringing all. There's a lot right about the Dave Batista, Mr. Hinks character. But the only problem is, is that it's a Craig movie. It's mm. a Craig era Bond movie that at this point that they've just taken themselves way too seriously at this point and yeah. everything that they're doing to bring back the tropes of the Bond movie are, is way too little, way yeah. too late. So it's like there's nothing really fun that the character gets to do. Right, I think the... Like, if, if, this, if this was any other era, like, Batista could handle being a more... I don't want to say he has to be, like, super funny or super over the top, but I just feel like another era would allow a little bit more from... And maybe that's the thing about the henchmen, because if you're going to do a henchman in this serious of an era film, like, how how fun and creative are you going to get? Like, they always have to be just, like, boring, like, muscle guy. Yeah. Like, and, I, and I think, like, I think, like, Batista has... You know, they, they do give him, you know, good fights with Craig, I think. I think, like... The car chase is fun, and I do think that train fight is – there's a distinctive kind of, like, energy to that fight that the rest of the movie lacks, yes. I think. And I think Batista does bring – just on his screen presence alone, I yeah. think, brings, brings enough to the role where it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of that movie. But you're very right in that, like, the Craig era just doesn't seem fit for, like, those classic henchmen types. Right. And they kill him, like, at a really odd – Point section in the, in the, in the movie. movie yeah like it you know what it does feel like that last fight with yeah. like when 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 bond's in the haunted house uh when, when bond's in the specter haunted yeah. house it could have used something like a batista like or with one e- last run or even in the uh i would say you or, could place it in like when he's escaping blofeld's la- like the lair. lair yeah and yeah. Yeah, yeah, that you're big not, explosion you're, yeah. you're not wrong you're not wrong there um you're not wrong. Yeah. But, but, Again, he just represents a problem with that movie where it's way too little of the tropes, way too late. And mm-hmm. but 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 it's a shame because I actually do like him. I think that everything about like in all of his scenes, in the snow chase scene, the style because that's the thing that they kind of brought to the character is that like this is a guy who clearly goes gets his suits like yeah. fitted and like you know very and he's a very fashionable guy. He wears a hat on his uh, yes. on his uh, snow. On a snow trip, doesn't he have like a double barrel gun too, mm-hmm. like a like yeah. a handgun? So like it, like all the things are like he's hitting all the right notes, and he's actually one it's of the highlights like, of the film. He is like one of the highlights of the film, and I and it's just again in that Mayday realm, which is a shame where the rest of the movie and and really on a larger whole, the rest of the Craig era doesn't really fit into that right. realm. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us like full circle in terms and of all of the. Bond. I do think it's worth mentioning. Yes, we've talked about all the Eon Bonds. But I do think it is worth mentioning our uh, our henchwoman from uh, Never Say Never Again. Yes, yes. Fatima Blush. 
whom we are also very big fans of. For many of the same reasons that I'm a fan of On the Top. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's about today. She has a very similar energy to On the Top in that there's just enough of she knows what she's doing. She's bringing an over-top performance. And I think, you know, Kirshner gives um, Barbara Carrera just enough room to just be fun within mm. that movie. And especially that whole tone of that movie, too, which I think also adds to those best Bond henchmen. Is kind of like the, the, you know the tones around their movies you know tend to bring out the best in them, and I think that really means the most for Fatima Blush, where that kind of the the movie they're building around her and the movie you know the kind of the silliness of the rest of that film mm. really brings it to like when she's like demanding Bond's sign that she was the best woman right. he ever slept with. It doesn't really seem out of place. It seems like oh, this is kind of crazy and goofy and fun. Right, exactly. And then that, I mean, something has to do, but. Yeah, another thing I think we're thinking about the Bond henchmen is that a lot of them seem very because since it's such a level down role, like it's not one of the it, it, it's like it's a second tier. Role. It's a second tier role. Is that they're very much at the the mercy of what the movie yes, is more, giving them more so than even like the other characters? Because sometimes even in a bad movie, you can have a villain that kind of escapes that bad movie, right? Or like, yeah, or like a Bond performance, or like a, an action sequence. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like the henchman, and I, I, I think again, Stamper in Tomorrow Never Dies is the perfect example of this. Is is like, it very much is a role where it's like, if you need to tone it down, you're gonna tone it down, right? And it's like also it's like a role that is not always necessarily necessary. Like I said, like I love For Your Eyes Only. It's become one of my favorite Bond movies. It's moved into my top five. But at that same time. I can't imagine that movie with a more distinctive henchman. Like, mm-hmm. you don't need it in that movie. And so I think, like, more so because, like, you need a Bond and you need a villain and you need a Bond girl and, you you know, more so than anything else. Yeah. That the henchman can be the most disposable in terms of that's true. Aspects. And that's another thing, kind of, despite all of this is what we're saying, it's not so a like, vital like, role yeah. in the, in so the like story. So, like, those characters like, um, you know, Stamper and Gobinda, even though it's, I, I said I like Gobinda, those are characters where it's like, yeah, you can pull them back a little bit, give them their one or two action sequences, but they don't need to be a focus. They don't need to be really their own character. They can just be kind of there to help move things along, help Bond to give one more thing to punch. Right. Whereas, like, again, sometimes you do have those incredible finds and those incredible characters like Jaws and Onatop. Um, but, you know, the Bond henchman can be, again, in that thankless role where it's, you know, some, it can easily not be the focus, can easily pull yourself back from right. it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it only makes it harder when you do have that henchman that you kind of pull back from is really to make that character distinctive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is interesting to just go through this era this whole canon and think of all the ways that the Bond hench that, have been used that, and, and, yeah. and have been presented too. Mm. Yeah. It, it, because it, you, because you have, again, you have the range of like the over the top to the lower key from the really big henchman roles to like, again, the really super disposable, the ones, super disposable yeah. ones. And I think that that really kind of is almost henchman like in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like a villain can use a henchman in any way he needs to dispatch them. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that you have these characters that are definitely aspects, again, when you think of the franchise as a whole, you think of them being like, oh, yeah, no, this is, you know, Bond henchman. You need a henchman. You need a Jaws. But mm-hmm. like, sometimes you feels like, you know, you don't. And yeah. I think like that's really what's really distinctive about talking about these types of characters is that you kind of have these characters who are like, oh, yeah. I don't think I could... I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, but the one thing I will ask, though, is... Uh, you know which henchman does Harrison Ford play? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I I was gonna say that um, going forward, 
what do you want to see when it comes to Bond henchmen? Well, I mean, it all really depends on what they end up doing post-Craig. Yeah. And I think that, like, in my dream world, if they go on, if they go back to kind of a more over-the-top realm, if they go on a more Mission Impossible track, um, back to where, like, you know, where the Mission Impossible film is, which is our next episode, by the way, um, our next Bond episode, uh, I would like to see kind of something in more of that kind of over the top realm. I think like, I really think that you need to make a splash with this next bond. Mm-hmm. And I really think it needs to be of this era. And again, the worry is they're going to continue on the, the serious born light, you know, born ultimatum, born supremacy thing. And, you know, kind of keep it lower key. Whereas I think I want to kind of see a more Marvel ask mission impossible, ask bond again, something over the top crazy. And I think that I need, one of the ways you can really make that distinction and really present that as the future yeah. is to kind of make another classic henchman type yeah. of character. Yeah, I'm pro henchman. I want to see more henchmen in this. I think it kind of and I think we're I think we're used to it. I think in this era of like, you know, we kind of follow more ensemble pieces and and Bond in some ways has become more ensemble if anything, and I just think allocating that sources to like let's get some henchmen in there. Let's go like and you know, and let's go to, I think, you don't have to go that far to look at great examples of it. I think GoldenEye is probably the perfect example of how you yeah. can have multiple henchmen, yeah. like with Boris and Xenia. So it's like, it's one of those things where I don't think it's a hard thing to accomplish, and I hope we go more into that direction, because I actually think that the henchman brings a lot more uh, than I think people than I think uh, people give credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would not uh, not disagree. Yeah. Um, well, all right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Also, isn't it weird that, like, probably the most diverse aspect of this franchise has been the henchmen because there's been yes. so many different shapes, sizes, mm-hmm. races, colors, creeds, and, and genders yeah. of these henchmen. It's always been very interesting that even from the beginning, even if there's like some playing into some, again, it's, it like, comes back to like, it's a, it's a role that you can have much more it, yeah, malleability on. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I think that that will do it for our can deep I also dive. Say, by the way, one last thing before okay. we finish, because this is my tradition. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, Side note, this henchman episode has really made me appreciate the character of Kronk from Emperor's New Group <laughs> a lot more. Because it's almost like it's a perfect kind of twist on that henchman role. Mm. It kind of is. All right, that's all I need to say. Okay, all right. Well, I think that'll do it for this uh, this deep dive episode in which... Uh, we got hacked. Yeah, yeah, we did. We got hacked. Uh, um, definitely not an oversight on my oh, part. Boris, Boris hacked yeah, us. It how, was, how, how, do, how, do, how do we not say Boris? Yeah, Boris hacked us. We are not invincible. We, you got, Boris has got to put the password. <laughs> What's another word for... What? <laughs> um, but yeah, um, all right. So I think, I think that'll do it uh, for this episode. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Always you, have fun with these. You can go check out our most previous Bond episode in which we uh, went outside of the Bond realm and talked about um, other uh, spy, espionage, and political thrillers. This time, we gave our formal apology to the Jack Ryan series and talked and, about uh, the Harrison Ford and gave more love to Harrison yeah, Ford. Yeah, we, we, we celebrate Harrison Ford. It was the apologize to Jack Ryan in... Um, Clear and Present Danger, which yeah. is a very fun episode, I think. And uh, and then that will do it. So our next episode will be um, our Godzilla episode, in which we talk about Godzilla 2014. So stay um, tuned for that. So uh, until next time, Nick, is there anything that you need to wrap up with? 
No. No. <laughs> I, I'm still Necros. I love you. Yeah, Necros. Yeah, you're going that, and then you're still thinking like you got to go back and watch Thunderball. See how that holds up for you. It's it's tricking you. It keeps tricking me. (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, everybody, I'm Will. Nick. And uh, have a good night. Peace.